to the JLA Cask, a podcast in which we explore life in the time of Grant Morrison across the DC universe and beyond. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I'm the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And I did it PJ. I didn't have to, I didn't have to read the script for the intro. You, you did. I'm very impressed. I, I genuinely thought you were going to mess it up. Well to be fair like I, I was going to say like ah oh, it's only taken us 78 episodes to not need a script that's not entirely true we ever since ever since we switched you know it's it's been a it's been hard it's been a hard adjustment yeah the the script has changed and there was that nebulous period where i didn't know what the hell i was saying and we didn't really have an intro yep (laughs) it was for wild west basically anything was possible (laughs) yeah well these things you know but you get it with time i guess and i don't know (laughs) It's fine. Uh, you did an uh, intro. Yay. Do, speaking of intro, PJ, do you want to update our listeners on uh, on your general tiredness and energy levels? Oh, or? it's about the same. It's about the same. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, my, my son, the Flash, was <laughs> um, up very early this morning demanding food, and I thought I could, you know, change his nappy, give him a feed, and maybe go back to sleep. But then he decided he just didn't want to stop vomiting. So I've been vomited on three times. I've had to change my outfit. Um, he went back to sleep, but I had to then get on with my day. So <laughs> it's been a long day already, and it's it's not even half ten. I, I have to ask because it's, it's a culturally significant moment. But did you engage with um, special hat day yesterday, i.e., the coronation? So I walked in the lounge at one point, and my wife had put it on the TV. But other than that, no, not really. I, 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 it annoyed me more than I thought it would. If I'm being honest with you, John. Hmm. Well, uh, no, I think this is a fair thing to talk about. Um, I would not have watched it if uh, if it weren't for the fact uh, my wife Lucy did want to watch it, and I, I think we kind of we we both roughly feel the same about the monarchy. But she she her her she finds him fascinating, like a kind of lab experiment. So yeah. she's like, um, I, I'm interested in seeing this moment in history. And I thought about it and I was like, and my rationale towards the end was like, I don't like football and I don't get a lot of say about the Premier League being on TV. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, I'm not a fan of the institution of monarchy. And yet this thing is going to be on TV anyway. So if I can eat cake and sit in my sofa and watch it and make snarky comments, I will, basically. <laughs> so that was my day. It was quite fun in a in a in a weird let's all laugh at this very strange thing. I just I had other stuff to do, you know? There was a Formula E race on, I had to watch that. 
I had to play. They've just re-released the first six Final Fantasies on the Switch, so I had to play you, some you, Final Fantasy. You played you know? all of them. Yeah, it was a it was a long ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, weird day, weird day. It was a very weird day. I, I it's. I realise that if you were recounting it to somebody who hadn't watched it, pretty much everything you say would sound like you were making it up. Yeah. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, no, PJ. And then he put on one special glove and then he he, he touched the bangles of compassion and the stirrups of bravery. I uh, believe that. You believe this this, hap- this actually happened. I mean, the one bit that got me kind of like interested in that weird way was when effectively they brought out the infinity scones of, <laughs> of, of the British monarchy where it's like the eight, no, I think I, I, lose, I lost count after a while. It was like the nine sacred treasures and like a good Saturday morning cartoon, they were all slightly different. So time, power, reality. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was literally like uh, there were there were uh, uh, pretty much the Nega bangles that like that seal Captain Marvel in the, in the negative zone. They were there. Uh, three different. Well, a sword, but not but not the big sword that we saw during the ceremony, which was cooler. Mm-hmm. Uh, so branding wise, that was a nightmare because I'd be like, "What are you doing? The cool sword. You keep the cool sword out all the time." <laughs> Honestly. Uh, cool sword, which gives you plus five ice damage. Well, yes, yeah, effectively, yeah. I mean, not this kind of piddly Scandin sword. It might be covered in skull and diamonds, but like, you know, I prefer the big one. Um, but yeah, it's like uh, he got uh, a special cloak, uh, bangles, stirrups, a sword, a glove, a ring, an orb, a scepter, a rod, and the crown. I think that's like 10 or something like that. I mean, Charles is quite old. He can't carry all of that. No, and this is where this is where it got weird because I was like, is he going to put every single one on? But no, it, it seemed random. Like he put the sword on for like three minutes and then took it off again. But he only like kissed the the ring. But he did wear the glove. It was it was very confusing. I mean, it's just baffling. And if and, anything, it needed a second editorial pass. Yeah, <laughs> and yet people in the UK just they love it, and I don't understand. Do not understand how we're going through a cost of living crisis, but it's okay to watch the rich man drive through London in his solid gold carriage. Now, now, PJ, PJ, you're being unfair. Uh, there were there were I'm two. I'm tired. Car- I'm salty. And PJ, there were two carriages, and only the second one was made of gold. <laughs> well, it's good he had a backup one made of I don't know, the tears of the children in the sweat house. <laughs> I, pre- I like this is it's very seditious talk here um i i appreciate that like the moment you know he enters the abbey and everything I'm, I'm probably meant to be overwhelmed by the majesty of it all but if anything i i was mostly kind of standing there with my mouth just hanging open because i it just the whole thing just struck me as a bit kind of like strange and sad in a way like mm. um he, he seemed like an old small man in a way, uh, wearing a lot of very silly um, jewellery and robes. And it was very, yeah, I don't know. I never got the moment where suddenly the power of monarchy em- entered him like Shazam. He-, he didn't like level up is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's because he didn't say the word Shazam. That's the problem. No, no, indeed. Um, did anything else interesting happen? No, not really. It was powerfully, it was powerfully strange. I'm kind of... <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. It was an interesting spectacle to consume, like as a viewer, 
but uh, if I had any, if I had any say in the matter, I wouldn't wouldn't have done it personally. I mean, my wife said she was watching it because she might not ever get to see it again, and I was like, give it ten years. I mean. <laughs> No offense, but he's not a young man. <laughs> no, no, and that and that's a weird thing as well because like the commentators, because God, the BBC does this yes. like uh, it's like twenty four hours of just sycophantic commentary. You're like, oh yes, and there you'll see uh, he's wearing shoes, um, very down to earth. The king always always wears al- shoes, always wears shoes. <laughs> yes, and. But they were doing stuff like saying, like you know, there's the procession moving through London, the capital of capital of our glorious nation, in a in a spectacle not seen for many a year. And I was like, it's been six months since the Queen's funeral, which like, was basically the same, just with more black. Yeah, and and more people, I think. <laughs> Very strange business. Yeah, I'm you know I'm not as anti-monarchy as I come across. I've sort of put myself somewhere in the middle, but I'm not I'm not pro it. But yesterday did just annoy me. I made a cake though. Mm. Yeah, cake is good. I can get behind cake. Yeah, yeah. I spent I spent I spent I spent a fair amount of time making icing, which was quite nice. What what kind of cake was it? It was a chocolate cake. Ooh. Well, actually, I was jokingly calling it democracy cake, and <laughs> I was going to make a point about like slicing it really unevenly to make a. <laughs> to make a point but <laughs> in the end we just we just we just ate some cake fair enough fair enough um we were before we started talking about our our um our godlike our godlike rulers uh dark side we, is uh, <laughs> we were uh we were just talking about the nature of dc trade paperbacks yeah because the 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 book we're looking at today uh, and we'll be with it for a while because it's a 12 issue. I guess back then they called these a maxi series, didn't they? Mm. Um, if it was 12 issues and obviously collected into one big chunky volume. Uh, but we've both got the same edition from May 1999. Mine vintage. I bought it in 1999. <laughs> uh, John Slacking got his last week. Now, y- you were just, you had your finger on the pulse, PJ. You were, you were there from the get go. Well, it was just more that I sort of, bought everything I could of the main JLA series in trade and I was desperate for that JLA content so I was buying you know everything JLA Titans JLA World Without Grown-Ups JLA Year One all of it everything I could get my hands on that said JLA in the title well here's a question I, I have a genuine question for you PJ because you're quite you're quite good at this sort of thing um when would you say roughly DC started um, religiously turning their comics into trade paperbacks. I think it was a '90s thing. Um, I would say DC were ahead of Marvel on it. Um, it was much easier. Obviously, I can only speak to collecting in the UK, but it was much easier to get a DC trade than a Marvel trade in the UK, and you could buy complete runs of things like the the Morrison run on JLA, or they'd collect. You couldn't necessarily get complete runs of, like, Batman or Superman, but you could get all the main big stories that ran through those mm. through those comics. So, obviously, with the Superman books, it starts with, like, the death of Superman and moves on through there, but then you could buy things like the death of Clark Kent, Superman on trial, Superman the Revenge Squad, these trades that would collect a whole story that ran through the Superman books, transformed Batman, you had the same Nightfall, uh, Prodigal... 
Legacy, Contagion, No Man's Land, all of that. Um, so I think I would say the the mid nineties and probably Nightfall is where, in my mind, it sort of starts with DC, where they start collecting these things uh, on the regular. We see that's interesting in itself because I guess in in the UK the publishing industry is obviously smaller than America, and we didn't have, well, we certainly didn't back in the nineties. We didn't have as many comic shops mm. uh both in terms of just being a a smaller country and b just it was a little hard to get hold of stuff uh it was rare if your town had a comic shop um so i guess in the uk the ways of getting a comic out there were to one go in go down the bookshop route with trade paperbacks graphic novels or two to go through the newsagent route uh which i guess to anyone who didn't grow up in the uk um we we have quite a uh, we have a national uh, high sc- or high street brand called wh smiths mm-hmm. uh which you can find one in pra- practically like every every town at least one at least one yeah and they're, they're a bizarre shop because they'll sell stationery some books um like uh, some games maybe mm. uh but also uh, gift cards um, and magazines. More than anything, just magazines. Yeah. And it, there's a bit of a tradition in the UK of of comics being published directly to news agents like WH Smiths. Um, and I feel in the UK, certainly when we were growing up, it was easier to find a Marvel comic yes. in a news agent, but maybe easier to find a DC trade in a bookshop. Yeah, well, actually, Marvel had their deals with. Uh, you started with Marvel UK, which did do sort of these newsstand things, like um, oh, what were they called? Spider Man and Zoids. <laughs> I want to was one which then became Exploits of Spider Man, which then became Astonishing Spider Man. So through Panini and, and everything, there was I think there was an Incredible Hulk magazine which would reprint things as well, and then of course in the early nineties you get then the proliferation so essential x-men launches then the wolverine wolverine unleashed i think comes after yes, that indeed. and then it goes into heroes reborn avengers united and nowadays there's four or five of them and i'd say panini and marvel had that for a good 15 years before any dc stuff started being put out and again that was still panini with their batman book off the back of jla avengers before titan who were doing the dc trades already then went, well, hang on, why aren't we doing these comics? We do magazines. So they took the license then and, and started basically doing what Panini were doing with Marvel, but with the DC books. I think I think the, the weird thing was is that, like, um, aside from the Batman animated series and the Superman animated series, um, we seem to have a proliferation of Marvel uh, cartoons. Mm. So obviously we had X-Men, Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Iron Man... I knew these characters from cartoons. And there's also this, I, I don't know if it was Panini as well, but they would also do um, original comics uh, based on Marvel characters, but aimed at a younger audience. Yeah, so, that, that was Panini, Spectacular Spider-Man Adventures, which I think is still going. Uh, well, I saw a friend, last, uh, a couple of friends last weekend, and they had... Uh, uh, their little, their little, their, their, their children with them, and um, the kids had a Spider-Man comic. 
I think published by Panini. I, I remember checking. I, I was looking. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this was based on a very, very kid-friendly Spider-Man cartoon, like a CGI Spider-Man show, which is currently on air. Okay, I'm not familiar. So I, in the same way that I think Spectacular Spider-Man was original stories produced as a direct tie-in to the Spider-Man cartoon. Yeah, the 90s one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I guess that's a pathway, isn't it? Like, kids in the UK are seeing the cartoon, loving that character, and then they want to go to their local news agents to get a, a Curly Whirly and uh, and a Spider-Man uh, uh, comic. Yeah. 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 Those, so- those cartoons, I think, were also my gateway into shared universes, because when the oh, X-Men yeah. turned up in Spider-Man and it was the same X-Men, the same actors, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> The, it, it's funny, isn't it? Because like, like I know the ni- in many ways the nineties wasn't an amazing time for comics, but it does seem that like for DC at least there was this big explosion of trade paperbacks. Mm. I don't know if that's because they'd cornered um, event comics a bit more, as you mentioned, like the death of Superman, Nightfall, that sort of thing. I think. Uh, there's an element of that because I think obviously Marvel tried to do that with like the Clone Saga things like that, but Marvel would make it would run too long and it just wasn't as good. Mm. So whereas you know DC they they'd put these events out if it was like a character event like the Batman ones. I think Contagion and Legacy ran over only two three months each maybe. Um, I've seen Nightfall a bit longer. That was I think a year all told maybe slightly longer. I think it was maybe like six months and then a year with Azrael as Batman and then a couple of months to wrap the story up. But yeah, the clone saga went on for about five years and that's just, it's too much. Oh oh God. And wasn't there like, um, absolute carnage as well. Maximum carnage was good actually. Yeah. That was, that was again, like a three month one that ran through, but that ran through not just the Spider-Man books as well. You had, um, or was it, no, it might have just been the Spider-Man books, actually. Yeah, so that that was quite a good one. That was early 90s. Um, and I think Maximum Carnage does hold up quite well today. Oh, Because it's sort of saying... Oh, okay. so, it was at the point where in the 90s where the 90s had just come in off the back of the 80s, getting all dark and gritty and stuff. And the point of Maximum Carnage is that Spider-Man is not that. Right. And he's fighting his very 90s threat in Carnage and Carnage's family of serial killers and other darker, edgy heroes like Venom and Nightwatch. Who remembers Nightwatch? Nightwatch? Oh, <laughs> yeah. God, I don't, I don't remember Nightwatch. There we go. I'm saying something. Are trying to get Spidey to sort of sink down to their level to fight Carnage, and Spider-Man is refusing and, and ends up winning the day his way. So I, I like Maximum mm-hmm. Carnage for that, yeah. Well, interestingly, the, the reason I kind of like exploring this option, uh, this, this avenue of, of discussion, is that it, it it's interesting to me that, like, all my introduction to my my introduction to DC Comics, as I think we've touched upon many, many, many a time, was the trades, mm. which uh, were available in like Ottica's leading book chain at the time, and I guess they were mostly coming through Titan Books. Yes, which I guess had the UK publishing deal. Yeah, um, but they were turn, churning them out relatively quickly, and this is what kind of started this because we noticed that well, this series uh, JLA Year One we're about to dive into came out uh basically ran throughout 1998 yeah january to december 98 was the 12 issues and the trade paperback we're each looking at came out in may 1999 so that's a really quick turnaround yeah well i think they were eager to once the last issue of 
either a series like this or or a storyline came out, they 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 get a trade out quite quickly to so capitalize while it's hot, I guess you know. Well, this was also a time where not only could you get hold of '90s, pretty contemporary at the time, um, uh, DC comics in trade. They were also, of course, you could get all the Vertigo books. Yeah. So this was like my education, getting all the Grant Morrison stuff from the 80s, all the weird and wonderful stuff, uh, uh, you know, the JLA and all that from the present day. Um, And it kind of gave this vibe that there was like this kind of, you know, they talk about the Great American Songbook. Mm. It was like the Great American comic book, if you will. Like there was this library of titles. And I always felt like for a while it was my duty to kind of like get all of them because it was all contributing to to this kind of great body of work. That- oh, same. I bought, as well as all the JLA ones, I, I bought so many Superman and Batman trades of the era. I've got the, the at-the-time trades of all the major Batman events. I believe most of them skip a few issues, and I think you can get more complete versions now. But Nightfall, as I said, Nightfall, Prodigal, Contagion, Legacy... Uh, Cataclysm and No Man's Land. I have all of those traits. <laughs> yeah, and it, and and there was, you know, I imagine you really felt like there was a continuity. Mm. Yeah, like I guess the for you at least, I don't, uh, did did it feel like it was too much content, or like did it feel no. somehow overwhelming? No, it didn't. And I think the reason I didn't obviously realize this until later on when I became aware of and then read Crisis on Infinite Earths, but because technically the DC universe had been rebooted in like 87 it wasn't it was only like 10 years worth of continuity that i was having to deal with technically mm. so it wasn't too bad and they weren't really printing much pre-crisis stuff it was only a lot later on that like one of my absolute favorite batman trades i own is the strange apparitions uh, trade which is i want to say the jim starlin run on Bat Detective Comics, which is only um, like eight issues or something, but it's so good. But it's pre-crisis, and I didn't wasn't able to get hold of that until a lot later on. But yeah, it was it was just all the 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 current stuff really was what I was devouring and reading, and so it was before I'd say mid two thousands is when DC continuity started to eat itself really. But at this point in the late nineties, it was fairly easy to keep track of and follow. Well, this is um, this is a thing. I wanted to mention because I I mentioned like a few months ago we uh, Lucy and I went on went on holiday we went up to York and we stopped into Traveling Man and my thinking was I could probably uh, sorry Traveling Man is a comic book shop I um for anyone who doesn't know and uh, my my thinking was oh you know what we're up here I'll pop in I'll grab a copy of JLA Year One in person because of course why wouldn't they have it and because uh, that's also the exact shop where i had previously bought um dc one million about a decade prior so i was going like oh of course they'll have it it's just part of the great american dc library of trade paperbacks Hmm. and i don't think they had a single book from before the new 52 oh really yeah that's a shame now on the one hand this is maybe just a sign of getting older you know tastes changing it is a you know 25 year old graphic novel there's no guarantee they would have it but am i but but at the same time am i is my thinking completely wrong because it felt to me like that's when if you will history began because for the dc universe that's when they started 
fastidiously putting out trade paperbacks of their their work. It's like, is it not as momentous as I thought it was? I, I thought these were kind of like foundational books that established See, the universe. I think that's a shame because, and just to correct myself, I've double-checked, Strange Apparitions is uh, Steve Englehart, not Jim Starlin. So, oh, good, good recovery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 10-issue run, uh, and Steve Englehart doesn't even write all of it. It's then uh, Marshall Rogers takes over after that but it's 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 probably one of my all-time favorite batman stories and it's pre-crisis um but yeah i think i that is a shame because i remember the late 90s when my access was really you know bookshops um the odd comic shop here and there it was mostly current <clears throat> current stuff i was buying but i think sort of early 2000s when i sort of discovered forbidden planet i think dc and marvel at that point made a concerted effort to start putting out collections of older things so you'd get like marvel's essential books uh the mm. black and white reprint books there and dc had um oh, i was like the, the archives dc archives or something which were hardback color collections of, of older stories and then they'd print things like strange apparitions and uh, collected golden age stories and silver age stories and marvel were putting out 60s 70s and 80s trades and collecting things like that and i would go out and buy so many of these things like i was buying modern comics so the individual floppies i was buying current series but then i'd be going to try and find trades of all the older stuff that i hadn't read and i i've got so many of those trades still that i think i enjoyed more than the the at the time current comics i was buying and it's it's a real shame if neither of them are really doing that anymore and only really putting out the collections of the current stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 strange, isn't it? Um, because I guess, uh, you know, my love affair with JLA started with the Grant Morrison run, and of course, just as an example, you could have carried that, continued collecting that trade all the way through the Mark Wade run, into the uh, Joe Kelly Doug Mank run. You know, which I did for the most part. And then I guess that mostly took you up to like, I don't know, Infinite Crisis. Yeah. And then there's that weird wobbly period and then you get Final Crisis. And I think I think Flashpoint is pretty much not long after Final Crisis. Um, no, you... Uh, wait, where does Blackest Night fit in? Is that before or after final crisis because yeah there's a series of events that are like one after the other almost um but yeah that culminates in final crisis um flashpoint sorry in the new 52 uh because does flash come back in final crisis or oh he he turns up in final crisis uh and while i haven't uh, while I've only skimmed through Blackest Night, isn't there a whole point about him being kind of like an avatar of life now? Hope he becomes the he he becomes a Blue Lantern. Yes, yeah, yeah. I so because I, really it's it's a countdown. It's a countdown. To, it's a countdown to Crisis, but it's a it's a countdown to the next reboot, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. New Fifty Two was mid to late two thousands. No, was it the twenty tens? Um. Yeah, I think it recently had like its 10th anniversary, didn't it? So it would have been like 2011, 2012, this. something like that. I feel I should know this. Hang on. The new 52. Oh, 2011. There we go. God, that long ago. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Following the conclusion of Flashpoint, DC cancelled all its existing titles and debuted 52 new series. Which, of course, their obsession with the number 52 
became almost a joke after all. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I mean, particularly when I think they cancelled a good number of those titles very quickly. Yeah, some of them only made it to like issue four, I think. Yeah. But then it's they replaced f- them with other books so that they could still be putting out 52 titles. Yeah. So so, so you, you want to knock on the door at Editorial and go like, are you, are you okay? <laughs> like, do we need to like open a window or something, get some ventilation in? Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, it just, there comes a point, doesn't there, where, you know, I, I like to think that the continuity isn't, the main thing that you know I'm, I'm here for the stories and whether the continuity is serving the story or whether a story is leaning on continuity that's fine but i feel like dc and marvel now are both desperately trying to make sure that everything matters mm. and that the continuity is is all in place that they're almost shooting themselves in the foot over it and i don't know Look at look at TV shows like like Doctor Who that's turning sixty this year, and they don't care about continuity. It contradicts <laughs> itself all the time, and half the fun of that is then fans trying to figure out well how can we make that work actually, and you know just do that, just tell the story. Don't worry about the continuity. And I don't know as I say, I'm not reading DC or Marvel books at the moment, so maybe maybe they're getting better, but I'm just so tired. It- yeah, I think I think tired is the word. It's funny how it's it seems that what what causes people to drop off titles, it, it seems to be less a case of you get some big visceral reaction where you just go, Oh, this is oh, what have they done? Oh, this isn't for me. Oh no. And more of a kind of is apathy the word? Like a general kind of exhaustion and you just don't have the energy anymore to keep up. Yeah. And I guess with every subsequent reboot, the well, the, I was going to say the canon becomes less relevant. But I guess that's entirely the point, isn't it? Because it's a it's a reboot. Um, you know, I I will get into it because we're going to be talking about year one. But I was, uh, you know, Lucy was asking, so, "Oh, what are you what are you covering at the moment? What's this new trade you've got?" And I said, I was trying to explain. I was like, "Okay, well, okay, hang on, let's roll it back. No, actually, let's roll it back a little more." Okay, so there was this thing called the Justice League in like the 30s, and then so I had to go like all the way back, and then and then explain Final Crisis. Oh, uh, sorry, Crisis and Infinite, Infinite Earths. Explain why Black Canary's on the team, and the reboot and the new continuity, and uh, the new continuity as of like 1986 and then 1998. Mm. And Lucy just said, "Why did they reboot the universe only to make the continuity weird and confusing afterwards?" And I just yeah. started, la- I just started laughing, and she and she was like, "Oh, have you? Have I said something weird?" I was like, "No, no, you're actually, you're completely on the money. Like that's the, that's the that's the weirdness of it all of every subsequent reboot." Well, I, th- you know, the the trade here for JLA Year One has an intro by Kurt Busiek, which is basically talking about that, isn't it? He's talking about the origins of the Justice League of America in the sixties. And how it was this team, and then Crisis happened, and then Zero Hour happened, and you know now it was it, Black Canary joined the team, but she'd crossed over from Earth Two and the Justice Society. But then because of time, it wasn't the original Black Canary; it was suddenly her daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's it's it's, and that's what this this JLA Year One is supposed was supposed to do was sort of say, right, in the nineties, this is the origin of the JLA, 
and it's sort of trying to weave around the 60s stories to an extent so that they sort of still mattered and do its own thing around that but yeah <laughs> dc was a mess <laughs> okay well let's 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 touch upon this because i guess um uh well and I, I with the caveat of i imagine the this reboot the night the the world we are in as of 1998 is less weird yes than the reboot as of 2011 yeah with the new 52 but so okay the year is 1998 crisis on infinite earths happened in 1986 yeah it's got me from wrong post the re post that universe shattering reboot in which the dc universe was kind of wiped clean and, and, and started from scratch all the heroes that we were introduced to reintroduced to as of 1986 had been active for 10 years is that is, is that the is that the, is that the conceit yes yeah okay so we're in this bold new world where most of the superheroes we know and love have been active for like 10 years well in the late 90s they had i think yeah that that was a, wasn't exactly post crisis it wasn't 10 years but then there was this point in the 90s where dc decided okay this character's been around for 10 years oh okay okay and as we discussed in jla and you you blew my mind on this uh batman as an example was an urban legend yes but only once zero hour hit Oh wait, when when was zero hour? Uh ninety four? Ninety-three, ninety-four? Um it's <laughs> after um Kyle becomes Green Lantern. Sure. So okay, I'm not I'm not gonna drill down on, on that on zero hour now, because I think I'll, I'll probably lose myself in another another fun hole. Yeah, nineteen ninety four, I've just double checked. Nineteen ninety-four. So so as of 1986, PJ, uh, is there a league running around in 1986, like post-crisis? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. And who is on the league at that time? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I've I've read Crisis on Infinite Earths, and I've read stories that come soon after it. Um, but the earliest I can think of a league in that period is the league that is around during the death of Superman story in 92, uh, where it's it's like Bloodwind, Maxima, um, Booster Golden, Blue Beetle, you know those those guys, oh, and Superman, sure. of course. Sure, 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 sure. Okay, so step in. Uh, I feel you're the knowledgeable one, PJ, and I, I, I'm trying to stumble through this. So please step in if I if I say something mm. wrong. So, so in 1997, we get, of course, Grant Morrison's JLA. You know Which, what? Sorry, I'm completely wrong. I have read the post-crisis Justice League because it's the one with uh, where Batman punches out Guy Gardner <laughs> in the first issue. Oh, so is that Justice League International? Yeah, I think it was just called Justice League and then it becomes Justice League International later. But that was the JLA relaunch after Crisis. So it's oh. Guy Gardner, Batman, Black Canary, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle. Um, Rocket Cap- Red? Uh, yep, he joins uh, Captain Marvel. Is on the team, John. Um, yeah, those guys. Fire okay. and ice. There we go. That's that's what I was forgetting. Okay, and then so uh, the JLA have a decade or so of publishing. Uh, it kind of flounders a little bit as a as a title. Mm. Uh, Morrison comes along in 1997 with a pitch and goes, "Give me the Magnificent Seven. I'll make this book amazing again." Yeah. 
uh, it becomes kind of uh, a sensation. Everybody now thinks of the JLA as being these seven characters. Yeah. And then in 1998, Mark Wade, Brian Augustine, Barry Kitson, and friends bring out JLA Year One. Yeah. Which is telling the untold history of the JLA's first year in operation. Yes. Which is post-Crisis on Infinite Earths, Mm -hmm. but hasn't been seen in print before because it is referencing the original tales from the 60s and earlier. Right. Okay. But in the new continuity. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of saying those 60s stories happened, but not in the way that those 60s comics showed you. Or sure. some, and and not all of them. Okay, and and the final thing I will ask PJ is, in the context of the DC universe post Crisis on Infinite Earths, Wonder Woman was a relatively new character. Yeah, so she didn't. She wasn't around in the Year One period. No, and it was a DC editorial decision to say that when you look at the old DC, when you look at the old JLA stories, the really old JLA stories, and you see Wonder Woman on the team, you are actually mistaken. And due to bad record keeping and faulty memories, it was actually Black Canary on the team. Yeah, I think the reasoning behind that is, and I might be wrong here, but I think Black Canary was the second woman to join the team when she crossed over from Earth 2. Um... So they just went, well, then we'll make it the first. And while I don't want to give them too much sympathy when it comes to doing the new 52, you can kind of see to some extent why they wanted to wipe the slate clean and go, no, 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 no. The founding of the League was the Magnificent Seven. Well, but but minus Aquaman and plus Cyborg. Yeah, no, I don't agree with that. But yeah, I, I think... I get that. I, to be honest, I kind of get why they wanted to do a reboot. It's just they did it so badly with yeah. the New 52. That's the problem. It's not the idea. It was the execution that failed the New 52, in my opinion. Because it's a, it's a wild... It, it would be like a wild pub quiz question to name like the founding members of the Justice League. Because I think more people than not would imagine that Superman, Batman and Wonder Woman were on the team. Yeah. And I think if you asked it in a pub quiz, you'd have to give them that because you'd have to go for the lineup in uh, the first issue of Justice League of America mm. or their first appearance. So it's inherently, I would say, a a messy premise because I think the the layperson would 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 assume it wasn't this lineup. Yeah, but it's a great creative team, and they do a lot of interesting stuff with it. Yeah, and honestly, I quite like having black canary on the in the book instead of wonder woman because mm. it powers down the league a bit you know black canary does not have wonder woman's power level mm-hmm. and you take away someone like wonder woman and like superman and yes you've still got jean yes you've still got green lantern but the rest of them aren't as powerful <laughs> agreed because i mean we certainly saw power creep in the pages of Morrison's JLA. Yeah. You know, it got kind of bigger and bolder. Uh, it's a lot more... Uh, they're a lot more human, for lack of a better word, Yeah, in this book. 
I must admit, like, I, I think this is the most Black Canary content I've ever read. <laughs> Same, to be honest. Aside from maybe, maybe Final Crisis. Yeah, there, there are later JLA stories, which she's a big part of that I've read. But this is this puts her more to the front than anything else I've I've read, I think. To some extent, does the existence... Because if this book is canon... Which, which, of course, it was <laughs> at the point in the conceit of recording this podcast. It is in canon. It's it's this podcast's canon. And this yeah, podcast's uh, canon ended in about 2005. So. <laughs> so if this book is in canon, is this why, for example, in Rock of Ages, it's Superman, Jean and Aquaman who are the ones who disband the League? Because Aquaman and Jean... Are almost like have a weird have almost like more authority because they actually did found the league. Yeah, I believe so. And you know, Superman is the chairman, so yeah, I think I think that's that's the theory behind it. And and sorry, PJ, one final one final question for you, if you don't mind, because mm. you're, you're really good at this. Uh, we are, of course, dealing with Hal Jordan. Yep. And oh my god, I can't remember his surname. Barry. Barry Sorry, what's the Flash's name? Barry Allen. Barry Allen. Sorry, it was Barry something. I couldn't. I couldn't remember. I spoke. Barry Flash. Barry Flash. Barry Flash and and how how Lantern. <laughs> uh, so we're dealing with um, the OG, if yeah. you will. The well, no, because obviously OG would be Alan Scott and Jake oh, Eric. PJ, no. <laughs> uh, we, we, so these two. So so Hal and Barry. Yeah. Were in the role post crisis yeah well but barry died yeah so post-crisis wally is the flash but barry was the flash and you know died in mysterious event thing we so so the idea is that a lot of characters can't remember the events of crisis on infinite earths is that yeah i think they just sort of had a, a vague memory that there was this major event but the details are sketchy and that barry allen definitely died in it so PJ, I have to ask then, how how does that work with Barry being present in this story? Well, because this is before that crisis event that killed him in the timeline. Wait, this is before the crisis? Well, uh, okay, okay. So the crisis happened and it changed his, how history happened. So things that happened before crisis still happened, but differently. And that's what this is. Oh. It just wasn't told until after the crisis. Oh, okay. So, so, uh, it's the day after crisis. You're picking up Superman issue one, post for crisis. Mm. Superman is not going... Gosh, I've just arrived in Metropolis. I can't wait to be a superhero. He's going, I've been a superhero for a while, and I remember all these adventures I had back in the day. Maybe some of my memories are a little hazy at times. But... Well, well, it depends. If you're picking up action comics, yeah. If you're picking up Superman the Man of Steel, then he is just arriving in Metropolis because that's retelling his origins in the post-crisis world. PJ, you're not helping. <laughs> You're making so, this much worse. <laughs> after the crisis, all the heroes sort of had retellings of their origins and how their origins had played out before crisis, but the new versions of. So you get Batman Year One, you get Green Lantern Secret Origin, you get Superman the Man of Steel, you get the new Wonder Woman book, which is just called Wonder Woman. Um, and they do retell their origins, but we're sort of saying these happened a while ago, 
um, and is not the present day story. The present day story is happening in these other books. Okay, so that so it's not like the New Fifty Two where they reboot it and then they say every hero pretty much arrived on the scene five years ago. No. Okay, so so that is how you're able to have your cake and eat it too, and you can have Hal Jordan be a legendary hero who's been active for years and falls from grace. Yeah. And that all happens within, call it 10 years. Yeah. But it doesn't because he's been active before. Yeah. Got you. Right. Thank you, PJ. I'm sorry. That was the most rambling historical preamble, but that that has set the context. My my advice to anyone uh, about this is just try not to think about it. Yeah, it's a very Austin Powers moment. <laughs> Just try to enjoy the movie, folks. <laughs> uh, PJ, so yes, uh, this is... Uh, I apologise for uh, diverting us, but this is uh, JLA Year One. Yeah, the uh, the definitive origin of the Justice League of America for about 15 years anyway. <laughs> um, well, I guess if we're, if we're diving in, PJ... Uh, are we going to touch upon um, all the newspaper content? I think we should. So we've got the Kurt Busiek, um introduction, which is is lovely. And basically Kurt Busiek going, I like stories that play around with time and history. I've done a few myself. This one is good too. <laughs> um, and then we get a piece ostensibly written by Clark Kent, basically telling us the Silver Age origin of the Justice League of America, where they all separately fought these alien guys who'd come to Earth to fight each other, and then they teamed up to fight the last one together. Mm. Um, Which wasn't the first appearance of the Justice League. That was the Starro story. And then we learn their origin. I think it's Justice League of America issue 9. Sure. Um, And there is mention that Superman also fought one of these aliens. uh, But in this instance, he didn't team up with the other heroes. Sure. So in the original origin story... Of the Justice League, did did Superman feature in that? Yes, yeah. Superman okay. and Batman both fought two of these alien invaders as well, and uh, they were <clears throat> they were members of the League, but editorial didn't want to use them very heavily. So a lot of the time in those early JLA stories, it would be like, "Oh, this thing's happening," and they'd phone Superman and Batman, and they'd both go, "Oh, I'm really busy though." <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's funny actually, because they were probably thinking like, oh, we can't overuse our characters because uh, yeah. they're so popular, which is wild from a modern standpoint, because you think you think they'd have, be slapping them on everything. Yeah, well, I think they wanted to say they were in the league so they could have, you know, say, look, Superman and Batman are here. And then every issue they'd be there for like two or three panels going, yeah, no, I've got to deal with this Joker thing. So <laughs> sorry. I'm really busy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, but we we uh, we open on uh, a ton of um, you know uh, these these newspaper articles uh, seamlessly blending Kurt Busiek and and Clark Kent into the same newspaper. <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, we also get uh, a lovely, uh, assuming it's the same in yours, PJ, a lovely double page spread of just uh, uh, just really really nice images of the league being leaguey. Well, I think this is this is the cover to issue one. Oh, of course, yes. But it's a wraparound, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So the back cover is a couple of photos. One of Jean and Black Canary, the bold and the beautiful, which, you know, I quite like that. And then Aquaman, Jean, Green Lantern and Black Canary saving people from some kind of storm. And then Jean, Hal and Barry 
alongside a plane. And then the front cover, which is just a big colour shot of the JLA fighting a bunch of villains. Yeah, I think I vague, I'm vaguely familiar with the dude who appears to have like skull and bones yeah, painted yeah. on him. Uh, I can't remember any of the others. They're, they're just they're getting beaten. That's all that matters. But what what we should point out is this is Aquaman in his his classic look. So the the green trousers, orange jumper, green gloves, short hair, no beard, two hands. They can't seem to consistently decide on whether he has black underwear on. <laughs> the black underwear seems to come and go. I think that's supposed to just be shading when it appears. To be honest, I I, I think I prefer him without the black underwear. I think yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, we then get uh, we turn the page, we get a, a few more little kind of um, articles and classified ads, which is kind of fun. Um, we get a kind of like a a, a business report about Vandal Savage, uh, who is apparently. Uh, uh, a reclusive uh, genius investor sort of thing. Yep, and then one, like an opinion piece from a, a doctor of psychology who's like, but do the superheroes make the supervillains? Hmm? Are the superheroes the real problem? <laughs> this, which is very much the entire premise of um, Alan Moore and Gene Ha's uh, top ten. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the idea of proliferating superhero syndrome, where... Yep. The moment you gain superpowers, before you know it, uh, your girlfriend gets superpowers, and your brother, and your dog, and your, and your neighbor, yeah, and your dentist, yeah, and now you have a nemesis. And, uh... <laughs> oh, and um, the Blackhawks are um, offering their services. I love that, that the Blackhawks have just put a little classified ad in. Now that's a weird pull, isn't it? I, I, I'm surprised at how much the Blackhawks are referenced in this story. I think it's just you know Mark Wade has a fondness for them, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the idea is that they were active during the Second World War. I don't know if it was the Second World War, if they're one of the groups that sort of active in between the Justice Society and the Justice League. So like the, the science fiction heroes, like the challenges of the unknown, things like that. Yes. And uh, we'll get to them in time, but also the dudes who have um, scuba gear. <laughs> the wet oh, people sea devils <laughs> thank you <laughs> the best superhero team in the world we have <laughs> access to commercially available uh scuba diving gear <laughs> but uh suddenly pj we're, we're actually into the comic the comic itself yeah and a man walks into a room sits down at a screen uh and then a, a woman's hand turns on uh, five screens sorry there's multiple screens and then this woman is watching Green Lantern fight the giant yellow bird alien that that he fought in this Appalachian invasion. I've I, I that's funny, PJ. This isn't the first time I've seen a giant gold bird in the pages of JLA. Hold that thought. I, I think Mark Wade may have written that story as well. Anyway, no, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but yeah, but we're basically um we get a montage of uh uh leaguers if you will various members of the league um each fighting a strange alien yeah um, and i kind of like pj although obviously i i have i have not read the the original original jla story featuring oh you should it's, it's fun yeah featuring the apple appalachians yeah 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 i i like that they're all different it's yeah. weird it's a very weird concept yeah, so uh, Black Canary is is fighting one made of like a, a glass being that she fights with her sonic cry, 
Aquaman is is battling like a big water monster that's trying to turn the ocean into mercury. <laughs> <clears throat> and um, uh, Flash is battling um, uh, a, a dude who's just made like blue fire, kind of. Yeah. Now I do take issue with uh, with the Flash fight. Um, I can't remember if it's in here or if it's in the Clark Kent story. Uh, in no, I think it's in, in Clark Kent's report on it actually. He says the tiny. English Hamlet of Croydon. Croydon is not a <laughs> Hamlet. <laughs> oh, I missed that. Oh my God! Wow. Yeah. Well, that is char- that's the most charming way Croydon's ever been described. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In the charming little village of Newcastle. Um, I guess the interesting thing to note is that while we're getting uh, all these kind of montage shots of the league, um, we're we're seeing uh, some well. I don't know, is it a lot of different people, it would seem, are observing uh, this footage? You know, making notes as they do so. Making notes, uh, drinking water. Yeah, we see a lot of different faces, kind of men, women, different ages, uh, all drinking water, all making notes, watching intently Mm. at, at the league on the screens. Yeah. And then we, we turn the page and we get Jean battling a big, big rock man. And then the five members of the league teaming up against a big tree man. And and then there is a speech bubble as well. says, reported seeing Superman battling a seventh. Yeah, I, I like the fact that Superman is such is kind of such a celebrity that like he just he's just good news. Yeah. Like you wouldn't you wouldn't not cover Superman. Yeah, I guess it's kind of confirmed that Batman wasn't involved. Yeah. At this point in yeah. this telling. Yeah. yeah. This is um now the the arc of the montage in comics is is a is a is a complex one and this is a good montage. Yeah, I think it's really well done. Um yeah, it's it's very nice. Yeah, little panels of the people watching, big panels of the the league battling and then different colored speech bubbles to let you know which TV it is. So you start just with Green Lantern and then you get a description of his fight and then Black Canaries comes in and the two different colored speech bubbles describing both of their fights sort of overlapping each other very nicely um gives you that effect of of different TVs and the the sounds coming out of both of them at once and the, and the babble that would create. Oh, for sure. And uh, and kudos to the lettering, which we will we'll give a shout out to the creative team in a moment. But yeah, it's it's really well done. It, mm. It's it's uh, it, it sounds like a cacophony of information, but it's not um it's not messy. It's very well done. Yeah, it's really good. Really, really good start. And as the uh, the the montage concludes, we we uh, see one of the observers kind of um, you know mute the screen as we 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 see like uh, the team all together as they say uh, time to get this investigation underway. Yep. And then we turn the page and we get the the same group shot, but as a double page spread. So, uh, and and instead of calling them by their names, it's their descriptions. So the Emerald Gladiator, the King of the Seven Seas, the Blonde Bombshell, the Manhunter from Mars, and the Fastest Man Alive. And I quite like that because it's introducing us to the Justice League. It's also it's also a very DC thing mm. to have like a kind of second moniker sort of sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just a cool team shot of them all racing towards you. So Black Canary's on a motorbike and Flash is running along. Martian Manhunter and Green Lantern are flying in the sky and Aquaman is is also flying because Green Lantern is towing him effectively. <laughs> He's always being like, is it better to be carried uh, by the ring or I think as on the cover to the first Morrison issue to be towed by your 
a hook arm grappling hook. I mean, he doesn't have that yet, but that would be my preference. <laughs> um, but PJ, who who made this book? Who made? Uh, this yeah, book? we get the title and credits here, and this issue is just Justice League of America Year One. I like that as well, that they just go with, that's what we're calling this issue. It's the name of the series. Uh, and then we get our credits. And I, the, it's credited to Mark Wade, Brian Augustin, and uh, Barry Kitson, storytellers. Mm. And then Ken Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahi, colorist, heroic age separations, and Peter Tomasi, editor. I think Ken Lopez and Pat Garrahi are the people whose names I've used the most in, when I've been reading out credits on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, the secret scars of the podcast. Like, yeah. They're they're doing good work. It has to be said. They really are, to be fair. And you know, we we don't give them shout outs enough, but they've both in the main JLA book and every other thing we've looked at that they've done, they've done superb work. There've been some beautiful colours and the lettering is is just on point. Yeah. Um, I have to say, like, um I up until this point was not familiar really with the work of Barry Kitson. Um it's lovely. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Yep. And I think also for the 90s, um, quite um, understated as well. Yeah, he, it's not flashy. It, it's it's there to do a job and it does that job very, very well. Yeah, and it, it's wild in a way that this is a... Because obviously this is a modern retro book by its very design. Uh, it's weird to think that this came out in 1998 and looks the way it does. And oh, I don't know, something like Young Blood hmm. came out in like '94 or something like that, and looked the way it did. Yeah, like um, this shows more restraint than I thought the decade and the industry had at the time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Anyhow, uh, we we cut from that dynamic shot, PJ, to uh, the Central City Police Department, where uh, a man called Barry. Uh, is uh, is late to work. <laughs> yeah, he turns up uh, to the the lab where he works as like a forensic science guy. <laughs> Words are failing me. Um, <laughs> where his his colleague is uh, just uh, Jack. Sorry, his colleague Jack is is all watching the same Justice League report, and he says, "Hey, Barry, you're late. And did you hear about these guys taking down an alien tree? What do you think they'll do next?" And Barry's like, "I don't know." Um, but because uh, Barry's more focused on the job, you know, he doesn't come across as a very uh, exuberant or kind of um, flippant character. And uh, but they're dealing with the ricotta case, which I assume is not about cheese. <laughs> uh, but they're doing a bullet analysis, and as um, uh, as uh, Jack fires a gun at a target, uh, uh, Barry. Um, well, time seems to stop, and we get like a little crackle of um, lightning in the air as before the target, before the bullet even hits the target, Barry goes, "Ah, oh, it's a match." Yeah, like he's able to look at it while it's in midair. Yeah, and he just says to Jack, "It corresponds to the murder slug." Next, and Jack says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm going to check it," and he says, "Oh, you were right. How did you do that?" And Barry just says, "It's a gift," and um, we also realise that. Um, I don't know. Um, Barry seems a little impatient. Uh, he wants to get the work over with because uh, he recently met with some people. They were working on something, but it, they have unfinished business, basically. 
And he also says uh, he's not really used to being a team player, so he's got to he's got to work out a few things, basically. Yeah, yeah. And Jack says, you know, I, I get it. You know, you're a slave to the lab, and it's why I love you because it gives me a lot of coffee breaks. I'm going for a coffee break. <laughs> and he also says, you know, uh, don't overcommit, Barry. You're only human, remember? And Barry is actually a little worried by that because he's starting to think. He's not. He's no longer human at all. As he moves through the lab uh, as a blur and effectively does all his work in like I don't know two seconds yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And he 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 thinks that his super speed came from a freak accident. Is that how the rest of the league got their powers? He he wants to know at the very least. Maybe they could all swap some information. And then he says, you know, it, it seems like this this superhero thing is pretty new to each of us. But it probably wouldn't hurt to talk. And then his captain comes in and says, oh, I've got you a new detective for you to meet. He's going to work with you. And uh, his name is Paris Jackson. And also, I'd just like to raise, his his boss uh, gives him a hard time here for having a clean desk and always yeah. assumes that he hasn't done, he's not doing enough work. Um, I, I mean, like, come on. Like, you only have to look at, like, Barry's efficiency to know that, like, he's he's the best pe- he's the best guy you have, for yep. crying out loud. <laughs> he keeps a clean desk. It's not a crime. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, we cut away, PJ. Yes. To a different city. I forget which what city this one is. Uh, me too, to be honest. Yeah, maybe it's also Central City. Who knows? But, yeah, th- we're at a, a flower shop, and two men are making a delivery... And they are also talking about the Justice League, but they are making horrifically misogynistic comments about Black Canary and her legs and her fishnets and her leather. And um, uh, the uh, lady who's running the flower shop and accepting the delivery uh, is giving them an icy, icy kind of glare as she... um, finishes the as she accepts the order but they kind of they kind of ignore her and just kind of um leave her to sort out the crate herself so she's not best impressed basically yeah she wants them to help her get the crate in the back and and they're just completely ignoring her because they'd rather perv on black canary and they they just leave and then this 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 woman's mother walks in and says oh man aren't they trouble uh, and then she also discusses having a very uh, matter-of-fact conversation about um, whether her daughter is going to be joint forming a team with Flash and the others. Because I guess we can assume that she is Black Canary. And so was her mother. Uh, yeah, so um, the Justice Society, PJ, like, in this continuity, what are we saying? Were they, were they, were they active during the Second World War or yeah. kind of around that time? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that um, while superheroes are uh, kind of not too common, uh, and certainly there's been like a new wave of superheroes, um, they're not the first by any means. Like yeah. there's there's pedigree here. Yeah, yeah. And if we're saying this is in, so this is 98, the book comes out, set 10 years ago. So it's the late 80s, 1988. So Dinah would have been born in the late 60s so yeah i guess that her mum looks good for her age yes yeah i mean every, it's uh it's all the exercise bj yeah like well. you know fight, fighting crime keeps you young basically <laughs> and but it's sort of diner doesn't really get on with her mum you sort of get 
her mum's like, oh, you know, I saw you fighting that glass thing. Oh, me and the Justice Society, we once fought and died. And she goes, yes, the crystal count, I know. Tell me again. Yeah, there's a real element of like um, kind of being like a showbiz mom. Like yeah. kind of like living living vicariously through her daughter a bit, kind of, and also just kind of like completely ignoring her daughter's concerns or comments and stuff. Yeah, and she's also because she used to own the flower shop, but now Dinah owns it, and she's also helping out, going, "I think this would look better here." And and Dinah just quietly says, "I thought this was my store now." There's also um, because obviously um, Dinah does not have blonde hair. No. You know, she she has she has dark hair, so you'd kind of be forgiven for thinking, well, she couldn't possibly be black, black canary. Um, she looks completely different. Um, I think they're also kind of doing some. Is there is there some kind of subtext here about she's meant to be kind of like being overlooked? You know, because she's kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, normal and you know, kind of not very extravagant. Is that yeah. the idea? Yeah, yeah. she's wearing a, a big baggy sweater and short dark hair. Even though, of course, in the context of, you know, the comic, she is a very pretty woman. So it's not as if, like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, And Dinah's kind of general frustration is not helped when a guy comes in wanting to buy, uh, as he says, the most beautiful woman in the world some flowers because he always sees her by this flower shop and Dinah's like, ooh, well, let's not be coy. And then he just runs out and gives it to a, another woman who's passing by. A, so, a blonde woman. <laughs> yeah. So Dinah's just not having a good day basically yeah and her, her mum says oh i guess blondes really do have more fun but we know that don't we and dinah says man where's that wig when you need it <laughs> and uh and then uh a friendly police officer walks in uh just kind of has a chat with everyone uh da, 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 da. officer sherman sorry he does introduce himself uh dinah's mom continues to aggressively ignore her to the point where Dinah just snaps, shouts, and every flower pot uh, explodes. There is a wonderful panel when her mum's talking to Officer Sherman, where Dinah is sort of in the foreground making a strangling motion with her hands, and it's like, yep, been there. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the, the panel after all the flower pots explode, which is just for two of them in silhouette, and there's like a little black shimmer over Dinah's head, which is the universal comic language of I'm pissed off. Yeah. Yeah, because we've also established that her her mum did not have the sonic powers Dinah has. And then Dinah just storms off and her mum says, We we need to clean this up. Where are you going? And she says, To be around people who don't make me crazy. Uh so we cut from there, PJ, to uh a dock. Like Docklands uh appear. And there are a bunch of, like, wet footprints leading out of the water and into a bar. Yeah, and it's Aquaman. He sits on a bar stool, places some coins on the bar, and the barman just says, we don't take doubloons. And Aquaman just has a little gasp. Yeah, and he's kind of shocked because uh, this bar serves fish. Now, I guess my question would be, PJ, uh, what does Aquaman eat if he doesn't eat fish? Seaweed. Seaweed. Is he a vegetarian? I don't know, actually. Yeah, he could be. He's got Atlantean physiology, so maybe maybe it's krill, PJ. <laughs> he passes he's, it through his baleen. Yeah, he swims around with his mouth open. We, it's very we, it's very rare that we see uh, Aquaman deploying his his uh, baleen plates. Uh, it's quite disturbing. <laughs> uh, but we also get a really nice touch, which I do love. Is that um, 
the bartender is going like uh, and talk English, you know, because I, I you've got a weird accent. I can't understand you, which is a nice. Just a nice little quirk about Aquaman that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, that he would have this accent, and he's new to America and and the English language. And also that someone says, oh, it's Aquaman, I've seen him on TV, and they can't hear him when he replies because he's also talking very quietly because sound carries better underwater. Lovely, just a lovely little touch, like the, the difficulty communicating... It's so subtle, but it, it perfectly matches where this character is at at the time. And I and up until this point, I don't think I'd ever seen anyone do that with Aquaman. No, me neither. Like, he was just a normal dude who lived in the sea. But at this you point, know. obviously, I'm I'm used to the Aquaman of the Morrison JLA. So the the modern Aquaman with who's confident, the ruler of the seven seas, and a grumpy sourpuss who can also hit you with a one liner sometimes and just punch you in the face. And- <laughs> And he's yeah, and he's it's it's nice to see that at the beginning he was just awkward. Do you see when you look at this Aquaman and you look at the Aquaman of Morrison? Do you see a lineage there? Do you, I can, do you, yeah, yeah, I can. I, I think I can as well because like he's while he has a bit of a temper on him um, at this point, um, he's he seems a lot more open, a lot more willing to kind of learn and accept uh and i can kind of see that given how the world treats him i can kind of see why he becomes so grumpy and curmudgeonly yeah. in the morrison book yeah and in 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 the bar a man is is offering to buy him a drink he says uh, tell us all about life under the sea um where'd you get your pretty shirt how long can you hold your breath and then this man just dunks aquaman's face into like a, a trough of water that is is on the bar. Maybe it's the sink. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair, this doesn't look like the, the cleanest bar in the world. It, that could be the sink and the um, the uh, kind of non-alcoholic refreshment, for all we know. Um, but yeah, so he's basically just holding Aquaman's face, like just holding him like face down in this water, having a good old laugh. Uh, and... Um, Aquaman is not is not drowning. I think that's fair to say. But you see his kind of hands on the bar. Uh, the wood is cracking, and then uh, he he rips himself free, crushes the bar, and uh, knocks the guy to the ground. Basically, yeah. And he turns around and shouts at him. And I like that it's not quite perfect English because he shouts, "What problem do you have?" Yeah. Yeah, rather, it's, it's, you know, again, where, rather nice than going, what's your problem or, or something like that, is what problem do you have? Here I was just trying to fit in for a change among you. You'll excuse the expression, surface dwellers, and all you want to do is remind me why I don't trust a one of you. Yeah, and um, in- incredibly, the, the goon who uh, antagonized Aquaman is just hungry for punishment because he, he picks up a baseball bat and he's about to swing it when a guy steps in and stops him. Uh, because it's the, it's, he, he reckoned without the awesome power of the Coast Guard, PJ. It's about time they arrived. Because this guy is uh, he's, uh, he's from the Coast Guard and he, um, he, he rips the baseball bat out of his dude's hand and he's like, okay, apologize. Yeah. And the goon does. And uh, the guy explains, well, hey, Aquaman, uh, I'm trying to help, but also I didn't want to see that guy get beaten to, beaten to a pulp by you. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was helping him more than you, basically. But he also says that he, he overheard and he wanted to try and prove that not all humans are to be mistrusted. And he offers to buy Aquaman a drink. 
And Aquaman says, well, what do you want from me? And he says, nothing, just friendship. My name's Perez. Do you have any other land friends? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Aquaman is not best impressed with humanity, but I don't know, is willing to stick around for a beer, basically. Yeah, and, and he also then says, I'm, I'm meeting up with some people later today. Um, maybe I'll join up with them, maybe I won't. First sign they show of being like, these primates, I'm swearing off the land for good. Uh, so then we cut, PJ, to um, a plane on fire. Like a, like a big, a big fancy plane. And uh, we discover that somebody called Hal is piloting it. And also, uh, it's not going well, because as we all know, Hal Jordan is a test pilot. And uh, basically, uh, uh, his his man on the ground is telling him to, uh, you know, abort, abort. And Hal, being the man he is, is like, no, of course not. I'm bringing this thing back in one piece. So please cover the runway in foam because I'm 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 going to I'm going to do a well, I'm going to do a, a manual crash, hmm. shall we say? Yeah. And obviously the man on the ground is, is Tom, his, his friend from the comics who we saw in the final night parallax one shot unfortunately they have gone back to the the pie nickname here which okay yeah um yeah i mean i guess i don't know <laughs> i don't know i mean i guess if you don't know the context maybe it's fine yeah yeah but oh well um anyway oh. tom's saying you know it's this this isn't just just bail out it's not your money it's carol's and then he pauses and says you're trying to just suck up to carol aren't you yeah um and uh anyway he he lands in the phone um uh no one dies uh and the plane is mostly in one piece yep and one of the guys on the ground says uh to Tom, tell him we're making him pay for the phone again. Uh, yeah, so uh, we get this. I mean, it's almost quintessentially Top Gun, but we get this. Uh, yeah, we get the, inter- the the dynamic where it's like it's Hal and Tom, and they're kind of like a pairing where you know Tom kind of keeps the planes running and and uh, does all the work on them, and then Hal basically mostly destroys them. He breaks them. Yeah. He breaks them. But we also know, we also learn that Tom is in on his secret in that Hal Jordan is actually Green Lantern. Yeah. Uh, And he gives Hal his ring back. And an interesting thing where he says, I wish you would wear this when you were flying, to which Hal responds, no can do. The ring would save me if I ever got into any danger. So it would mean I'm flying with a safety net. Like I need to fly with the fear of potentially dying to be good, kind of. Yeah, he so, just takes away his edge and he says, how, how reliable are the instincts of a test pilot who carries a big green airbag around with him? Yeah, and uh, but then here comes the boss. It's uh, Carol. Carol Ferris. And uh, she arrives with uh, another another blonde lady and says to Hal, um, what do you want? And Hal says, dinner. Let Ferris aircraft run itself for a night. And Carol says, okay, well play this lady correct and and maybe I'll I'll have dinner with you. And it turns out she's an FAA investigator who's on a routine visit, but now she wants to know what went wrong with the plane how just crashed. 
So Carol is like, look, can you just kind of, you know, you know, just don't just say the right things to her, you know, don't 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 make it look bad, basically. Uh, so uh, the investigator introduces herself. It's Laura Denton. And she says, can you feel can you feel the government in on what happened? Was it a problem with the Wayne Tech parks or the LexCorp wiring? You know, reference, reference, reference. <laughs> and then Hal says to her, no, we were just a little premature with our test flight and the buck stops here, which annoys Carol. Um, so he is not having dinner with Carol tonight. Carol leaves with Laura and Tom says, so you and me at the rib shack again? And I was like, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. So then we cut to uh, the rain, PJ. It's raining. It's, and it's very raining. Are, it's very raining. And there are two detectives in a car, Diane and John. John Jones. John Jones. The manhunter from the Midwest. Now, yeah, he's... Uh, he's uh, we also uh, also a nice little thing here where uh, his partner Diane um, it appears shocked when he actually speaks. Apparently, he's a very quiet fellow, and uh, says, "Could you at least clear your throat or something?" Which I think is a nice touch. Like maybe he suggests that John Jones doesn't ha- maybe he's not used to speaking very often because he doesn't have to. Yeah, hmm. yeah, but he, he's asking if she thinks of him as a team player, and and. He, and does does she trust him? She doesn't know much about where he comes from, what he does. And she points out, well, you know, you're the most curious detective on the Middleton Force. You have a spotless record. You always get your man. And you have no sense of humor. What more do I need to know? But then the uh, the drug dealers they're trying to bust have arrived at the restaurant they're, they're staking out. Yeah. So, and John's like, uh, John, J-O-H-N, is like, how can how can humans do this to each other? You know, use drugs and shoot each other. And she's like, "What planet are you from?" Um, and then just because they're about to like run in, uh, uh, a terrible like gun gunfight breaks out, and they have to dive for cover because bullets are flying. Um, John shouts for Diane to call uh, call for backup, and then he suddenly disappears. PJ, he's, he's gone invis- invisible. He's gone invisible. What could this mean? It could mean. That he's the Invisible Man. But he also has laser vision, PJ. Oh, yeah, look, he's... he's. Oh, that looks like Martian vision to me, John. Well, here's the thing, PJ. It's Martian vision. Uh, but I thought Mar- I thought that Martian vision was purple and was force rather than heat. But who knows? Anyway, he yeah, this invisible detective, who's definitely a human called John Jones, uh, heats up the guns and makes them too hot for for the dukes to hold yep and then he sneaks up behind another one grabs him and throws him across the room with one hand and then just pulls out his badge and gun and just says you're under arrest and then uh just because diane is calling for backup john marches out of the building with like five guys <laughs> at, at, uh, with their arms in the air at gunpoint so yes he somehow yeah he somehow did it all god he god he's a good policeman he's i have no idea how policeman. he does it yeah, yeah, really good manhunter, I'd say. Yes, and definitely a human. Definitely a human man. Yes. Hunter. Yes, <laughs> and um, yeah, he says he has to go meet some people, and Diane is shocked that he actually has friends, and uh, he disappears into the night. 
like in the rain a good a good film noir detective basically yeah. yeah and then we cut to a beach by a cave where there is two giant helicopters and the assembled not quite yet justice league talking to general wade eiling he's a he's a decent fellow he is i don't think anything bad will ever happen because of him and um yeah, basically, uh, it's it's very matter of fact. Like we're just right into it, and um, this is the aftermath of the Appalachian invasion. Um, you know, uh, it was uh, it was only yesterday that they um, battled them, and they, they they are aware that Superman apparently took out a seventh, but that's unconfirmed. But they have two inert alien bodies, and um, they've agreed to surrender them to the Air Force. Now, I like that uh, we get General Eiling in this. And this would have been... Well, this issue was January 98, so the same month as JLA 14, part of the Rock of Ages. Same month as um, Paradise Lost issue one as well. So Eiling wouldn't appear in the main JLA series until like later on that year in One Million, I think was his first appearance in the series, wasn't it? So, And I have to assume that as a character, he was like part of the dc canon yes like, just, he was he was yeah yeah so just like kind of sketchy military man basically but i wonder if because there was in one of those wizard specials there was talk about wade and morrison had you know spoken consulted and there would be things in year oh, one that would course. inform jla and i wonder if eiling appearing in year one first was one of those things so just just to remind you here's this guy Gonna pop up in the main series, but let's remind you who he is in year one. That oh yes, that could well be that could well be a thing. Yeah. And to be honest, like I don't think it, it it's a, a a loss to either series, but it would have been interesting if there had been more direct uh direct interaction between the two mm. books. But yeah, as it happens, they're, they're both just good, good books <laughs> that came out around the same time. Yeah. Um we see some of the league interacting with the soldiers. Um uh, They're quite taken with Black Canary. T- quite taken with Black Canary. He also just keeps talking about the Justice Society. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a guy asking Jean, "Is that is that really the way you look?" And he replies, "Sometimes." And, and uh, we, we also uh, get uh, Flash and Aquaman chatting as uh, Flash reminds Aquaman to speak up because no one can hear him. Uh, yep. <laughs> This cave is is a place that Aquaman found. He says there's an inlet underground from the bay. I'm pretty familiar with coastal grottos. And Hal <laughs> says, well, we put the uh, the creatures in here. They're under a protective dome that I created. And then as they walk into the cave, everyone looks surprised because there's a whole load of people swarming over the two creatures. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, for the context of, you know, which of the two creatures, there appears to be uh, a big dude made of stone, kind of. Maybe? No. No, it's no. Just a it's big not dude. St- just a big dude. I apologise. It's not the big dude. It's not the scone dude. And a, a big bird kind of like in a crystal sort of thing. Yeah. And s- some of the dudes, these mysterious figures who've s- swarmed in are kind of like lasering the big crystal as if they're trying to break it out. Yeah. And uh, Hal shouts that they're teleporting in. Barry says they're teleporting out with the aliens. And I like this this nice little touch because these people aren't used to working together. Hal does the typical hero thing and says, not if I, and before he can finish the sentence, Black Canary says, we, and I was like, yep, we can help it. And uh, they leap into battle, basically. Yeah, and it starts with just a cool panel, an action shot of 
you know, Barry running through, punching a whole load of people, Aquaman punching someone, John grabbing people and flying them into the sky, and Black Canary kicking a man in the face. It's it's pretty cool. Uh, we see the um, sinister uh, faceless goons, very faceless goons, because they're wearing masks. Um, have a distinctive logo on their on their blazers, but we'll we'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going like, no, this wasn't supposed to happen. Quick, get this alien back to base before it's too late. To which um, the giant dude, who I mistakenly for a moment said was the stone guy, uh, bursts into blue flames because it's the fire giant and it wasn't dead. Yeah, and um, they're like, oh no! So now we have a big fiery dude and uh, Jean. Um, screams as the fire dude comes by him and is only caught by uh, uh, a giant catcher's mitt by, from Green Lantern. Yeah, and as he's catching him, Lantern shouts to Aquaman, did you say there was an inlet and Aquaman's already on it? So he shouts to the fire giant, you know, you come on, follow me, and starts to lead him away from the cavern. And and then Hal says to Jean, you know, are you okay? It was, was it the fire? And Jean says, yes, flame weakens me. And I like, again, Hal is still figuring this stuff out. She says, what? A strong guy like you? I mean, noted, noted, fine. And, um, you know, we see a soldier going like uh, to Ealing, like, uh, you know, sir, permission to, uh, to which Ealing just says, don't do anything. Don't do anything. This is really crowded and crazy. Uh, If we get involved, we'll just be cut down. Right now, our lives are in the hands of five costumed grandstanders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so, so Barry's running around punching people, and he says he'll to Black Canary, I'll protect you if you've got any thoughts. And she says, yes, one, I can handle myself, and two, the JSA would be done with these losers by now. And I like Barry's reply of, on their first day? <laughs> uh, and one of the goons shouts into his wrist radio, leader to Locus home base. Having counted unexpected resistance, preparing to initiate extreme measures. It's Locus, PJ. It is Locus. Yay. The scientists from that one issue of JLA that Mark Wade co-wrote with Devin Grayson. Remember them? Which would have been like a year and a half after uh, after this. Oh, I can tell you, PJ. Uh, that was August 1999. Yeah, so like eight months after the end of year one. Yeah, so still still fresh in uh, still fresh in Mark Wade's memory, and it, and it certainly makes uh, the big golden bergs. You know, I think there's a reason we've seen them before, PJ. Yeah, for sure. Locus had been working on the Appalachian aliens, and to be a lot of year one, while a lot there's only little sort of things that inform the Morrison run, a lot of it informs Mark Wade's work on JLA, both his fill-in issues during the Morrison run and then his own run afterwards indeed indeed um we uh uh we get uh how how goes oh great you know just what we need another alien running around uh to which he he uh hastily backtracks and goes oh um jean sorry i I didn't mean and jean's like no i know you didn't mean to insult me go i'll look after the soldiers uh but hal has a bit of a trouble because um you know, as much as uh, Black Canary is about to give him some suggestions on how to deal with a bird, he's like, I can't. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's yellow. yellow. Yeah. Yeah. I like that she's saying, you, there's a Starman trick you could try. Here's what he would have done. <laughs> and then Hal's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go help Aquaman with the fire giant. You and Flash can, can handle this. Well, here's the thing, PJ. If a ring wouldn't work on yellow, which we know it can't at this point, 
could he not have used, I don't know, um, a big green hand to throw a rock at the bird? Yes. Yeah, that would work, wouldn't it? Like the, well, the, the, probably. The, yeah, the bird's not immune to rocks. <laughs> but it's all right, because, you know, Flash and Canary are going to deal with it. And then locust scientists are advancing on Jean because they're like, look, he's weak, let's get him. And then Jean just melts into the floor, pops up behind them and smashes their heads together. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, but, you know, in a, in a safe way where they're not dead. And, <laughs> uh, to which Hal is surprised. You can go, you can go immaterial too? Um, yeah, so again, I like the fact that everyone's constantly being shocked by Jean wheeling out a new power. Yeah, and, and Jean says, well, it's, it's a gift of willpower. And Hal says, yes, that's what I can do with the ring, but I can't do that. I, I don't think I can do that. Uh, where's Aquaman? <laughs> um, at the same time, uh, Black Canary uh, gives Flash some advice about something the old Flash would have done, old Jay Garrick. Yeah, because presumably this would have been before Barry met Jay. I guess, yes, because I guess by his own admission, he's only recently gained his powers. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess he hadn't asked permission yet to use the Flash name. Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't I don't know how that all works in, in the post-crisis <laughs> version of the events. But yeah, he creates a vortex underneath the giant golden bird. It's probably best not to think about it, PJ. Just, just try and enjoy it. All right, moment. I'll just enjoy Aquaman leading the fire giant away into the water, diving into it, and basically saying, yeah, come on, stay angry. Chase me! And then he tries to pull a big rock off the wall, but he can't do it alone. So Green Lantern arrives and creates a big green pickaxe to help. Uh, yeah, and um, by working together, they rip this rock out of place and uh, a giant wave just crashes over the fire, the fire alien. Um, I guess I, we, 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 we see through the story that everyone's a little surprised by everyone else's powers. I guess Green Lantern is, is surprised that Aquaman is so strong. Yeah. Um, but we're learning. And um, while Flash has the... Uh, has the bird kind of trapped in a vortex he can't really do anything with it but there's good acoustics in here pj his voice is echoing yep so black canary realizes that she can use her sonic cry and she hits the bird in the face with it smashes the bird's head into the ceiling and the bird falls to the ground unconscious and just a lovely panel then of flash and black canary high-fiving as the bird lands on the ground uh yeah and uh Locus realize they're they're losing, so they go, well, if we can't have the aliens, no one can. So they blast the golden bird and uh kill it. Uh and then Flash takes all their guns. Yep. Just, just, just the classic Flash thing of, of panel of him running at super speed, holding a whole bunch of guns, and then there's a load of scientists with their hands empty looking surprised. Uh and then the leader of Locus uh throws himself onto the bird, uh calling for a home base to triangulate a port matrix on his signal uh, causing him to teleport out with the bird and Flash is like ah my back was turned he ported away and Canary tries to console him saying oh don't feel bad even Dr. Fate would have had a tough time blocking that uh, and then um, Green Lantern and Aquaman turn up and they've got the inert fire giant in a, in a shield uh, and then um, yeah so you know, he says, like, look, you know, um, we can put the alien into 
your ship if you want uh if the soldiers are willing to, if your ship into your <laughs> into your helicopter if you want if the soldiers don't mind dealing with the prisoners and one of the soldiers is a little salty at being ordered around by a man in a in a unitard but uh general ealing proving he's not entirely a bad guy he's like hey hey now they put their lives on the line for us show them some respect Sergeant. <laughs> and then the man's like, I'm a lieutenant, sir. And the hiding's like, you were. Move him out. hey <laughs> That's a military burn, that is. <laughs> and yeah, and then the, the League just watched the helicopters fly away. And there's basically saying, does anyone know what that what was going on there? I heard the name Locus. I got nothing. And, and they're like, nope, I'm baffled. Yeah, um, they, they're also wondering how on earth, yeah, how on earth Locus knew uh knew they had an alien there aquaman says perhaps uh we should watch the expression watch our backs or as black canary says we could watch each other's back because maybe we make a pretty decent team yeah she points out we, we did make a good team in there so let's stick together and everyone's like yeah fine let's do it and yeah aquaman's like well you're still the best people i've met so i'll stick around for a while and and John just says you basically says, you've all been kind to me. I'm grateful. I would be honoured to join you. I also I also like that Aquaman's like. Well, look, I I, I get that you're putting together a superhero team, but I'm not a superhero. Like I don't. I, I this is just normal for me. Yeah. Like I don't <laughs> think I have powers. This is just me. But I guess I'll hang around if you want. <laughs> yeah. And then they they just start chatting. So. Black Canary's asking Hal Jordan about the yellow weakness, and the Flash is like, "Like, wait, hang on, you knew the Justice Society, but you're not, you're not that old." Jean and Aquaman are comparing strength, and John says, "I assume your muscles have been toughened by undersea pressure." Um, yeah, they're just getting to know each other. I think it's a really nice. I, I really like it. I, it's something I don't think I've seen done in the JLA before, but just the idea that Jean and Aquaman might have a kind of kinship because mm. they are both outsiders in yeah. a way yeah and i also like that they they aquaman says well it's just the way gravity behaves up here it's hard to get used to and jean is like yes yes i agree wholeheartedly it is really weird how gravity works on this planet <laughs> yeah but they're being watched by more locust goons by by evil nerds pj evil nerds the the worst villains of them all but with quite good branding yeah uh, they say, oh, new heroes, we didn't factor that in. And then one of them says, well, then we'll, we'll refactor. And, you know, we have an advantage. They don't know us. But now that our field agents are in play, we know about them intimately. To be continued. continued. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> the end of issue one. Yeah. There so we there go. we go, PJ. There we go. Uh, what do you think? Uh, it held up. I really, really enjoyed rereading that. There is, you know, some, let's call it, 90s comics treatment of women in there. Yes. But other than that, I really enjoyed it. I really like revisiting that. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Like, um, we see more of it in the coming issues, but they, they, they really ran with the line of... It, it, I don't know. It, 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 it's not like... The way, the way Black Canary is treated, it's it's like they're trying. They're trying, but yeah. She is also, very much an equal in the team, but she is also, you know, there to be ogled at. 
yeah it's funny it's like it's like um it's like what phase one is 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 ogling the woman on the team phase two is having characters ogle the woman on the team but then acknowledge that it's bad yeah so it's like it's a step in the right direction yeah (laughs) i think by the time the series resolves like they they kind of get past that so it's a weird thing that everyone's kind of horny for a few issues yeah (laughs) which um, again was just 90s comics yeah it's like it's like they 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 call out every character who does it but they still do it so yeah yeah but uh it's good. It, it's an it's an oddly kind of like sincere story. Yes, yeah. Sincere is is a nice word for it. I think. Yeah, like it's not trying to be arch or ironic, and it, it it's treating. It's just telling a straight superhero story, but well, in in a, in a way like uh. It's dealing with some wilder, more wacky '60s comic uh, um, concepts, but kind of modernizing them a bit, but also not going grim and gritty. Yeah. So it, it's 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 a it's a fascinating little beast. I'm surprised this came out in 1998. <laughs> I, what I really like is Mark Wade and uh, Brian Augustine clearly know these characters and. You can very much with all of them. We talked about tracing a line from the Aquaman of this series to the Aquaman in the JLA. And you can do that with all five of these. That trace a line from Jean to modern Jean, Barry to how Barry gets treated in the comics at that point, even though he'd he'd obviously died at that by then. And and how as well that line is there. It's 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 all there. But also how green they all are. And I don't mm. just mean Jean and Hal. Ha ha. Um <laughs> Yeah, but no, how they're all still new at this. They're learning their own powers. They're learning each other's powers, and that's a lovely element to this uh, this issue and this series. I think. Yeah, I mean, and that and that's the thing, isn't it? Like, the creators. Like, I mean, particularly Mark Wade. I, 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 I confess, I'm not. Um, I haven't been massively familiar with the work of um, Brian Augustine or Barry Kitson up until this point, but. Uh, they 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 write these they they work with these characters as easily as breathing. Yeah. Like uh, it's so clear that they love and admire these characters. Um, I, I I think I I just as a personal thing I still oh, just don't really like Hal Jordan as a character. <laughs> yeah, there's an arrogance to him, but yeah. You can see yeah. him how he becomes parallax. Is it's all there in his character. Yes, and I, I think one thing this series does well is is the lampshading of Hal kind of being obnoxious sometimes. Yeah. But the characters, everybody agrees that he's obnoxious. Like, the world is not bending over backwards to tell us how brilliant he is. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that does a lot to... I come out of this series liking Hal Jordan more than when I went in. <laughs> but um i think he is he is just a bit he's a bit insufferable he, he's no kyle basically is what i'm saying oh no no of course he you know no one is is kyle <laughs> other than kyle rayner uh, who was probably what nine yeah um, i think yeah i think it's just um maybe just because i missed a, a critical window of never having read or enjoyed the original comics in which um barry allen and hal jordan were becoming 
the world's best friends and all that. For me, I, when I think of Flash and Green Lantern, it's just Wally and Kyle. And and I, I think that, yeah, I think I, I will just, from a personal level, always just prefer those two being on screen together. There is a really good uh, follow-up to this series, I think, um, called which they just called The Brave and the Bold. Um, oh, okay. Which was, I want to say a six part series uh focusing on flash and green lantern um that i believe was uh written by wade uh i'm just looking it up now actually double check i want to get this right yeah which was the same team in fact so it's well mark wade and tom payer are the writers so not uh brian augustine but with barry kitson on the art again um which is, yeah, basically a follow-up to this, but focusing firmly on the friendship between Hal and Barry, which is really, really good. Oh, interesting. Well, there we go. The, uh, yeah, I... I, I um, another one to check out, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. It came out the year after, so it was 1999. Um, it started. But, yeah, it, it's it's a nice companion piece to JLA Year One. Did they do a JLA year two, or are, am I imagining that? Uh, I don't know, to be honest. I, I, if they do, I did. I haven't read it. To Google, JLA. To Google, yes. Who's going to get there first? Uh, I'm either dreaming it, or I, I felt that it might have been a real thing. Here we go. Uh, no, I don't think they did. Oh, okay. Well, there's that's... there's an animated show, Justice League Year Two, apparently, but that's all I can find. One thing I will say, just looking at particularly at the cover of this trade, where you've got the five main characters on it, it it's weird when you think of like um, you think of red and blue as being very heroic colours. Mm. It's weird that as a team palette, without Superman and Wonder Woman on it, there's a lot of green. Yeah, aren't, aren't green and purple are the villain colours, aren't they? Or they're supposed to be. Well, yeah, and and it's just like you know, with Jean, Hal, and Aquaman, it's like uh, yeah, it's just it's green across the board, really. No purple though, so they're safe. It's fine. It's not like the Hulk, who's green with his purple pants. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh man, I I tell you what, I did. Um, uh, I'm forgetting what it's called now. When I reclaimed all my old Panini comics from my parents' attic mm. a few months ago, I found the run on Avengers, and I can't remember what it was called. I can't remember if it was called Earth's Mightiest Heroes. It was written by Joe Casey and illustrated by, is it Scott Collins? Oh, the one that's sort of set between the first few issues. Yeah. Yeah, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Yeah, really good series. It's really good. Like, I was flicking through it again, going like, "This is good. This yeah. is like the this is like the Avengers Year One treatment." I yeah. like it. Yeah, that is a really good shout. They did a sequel series to that as well. I think that ran up to um, the Yellow Jacket storyline. Oh. And it's and when you think about it, it's funny because here's me harping on about how the JLA have a really weird and convoluted origin. But also, I mean, you think about the Avengers. Mm. It's like you'd probably ask most people and they'd say that, oh, yeah, Captain America was a founding member. Yep. It's like, nope, nope, he really wasn't. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, I can't be too critical, I suppose, because, yeah, pretty much every team's got a weird origin. <laughs> that is very true. 
Well, PJ, on that note, you know, given given that we are on the cusp of um, a good six months of content now, um, I'm quite excited. I mean, I've enjoyed that tremendously. Yeah, me too. I'm looking forward to revisiting the rest of the series. I, you know, there are key moments I really remember from it. So the, the the end of the series is burned into my memory. There's a two part story in the middle with some very cool guest stars that mm-hmm. is seared into my brain. <laughs> yeah. So, and then really good little moments here and there. One, I think, in the very next issue, a dis- sort of a brief discussion about, um, let's say, unmanageable costumes and, and bad <laughs> things to wear in a superhero fight, which has a really funny payoff. Yeah, and... Um... It was, uh, I, I, yeah, I'm excited. I, 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 I'm new to this series. I, I did not have the kind of like deep um, connection to it. You did, but it, it's just, it's just, it's a good story, well told. Mm. Like I'm, I, and the artwork is is really nice. Actually, I've, I'm, I, I, I need to look up more Barry Kitson stuff because it's, um, it's so elegant and understated. I think he does great work. Yes, he really. It, it, it suits the tone of the book. Definitely. There's there's there is something um almost a silver age quality to elements of it. So yeah. Yeah, calling it silver that was a, the it was on the tip of my tongue like through the whole show. I was like, how often am I gonna use the phrase this is very silver age? <laughs> We're gonna um, use it a lot, I think. Which is also I guess it, it was it was something that was leveled at Morrison quite a bit. Like, mm. you know, I always thought of um Morrison's run as being very forward facing and still reads is quite modern but it was regarded as quite silver age because it was bringing back a lot of weirdness yeah definitely well on that note pj um is there anything else you'd like to discuss um no i think i'm happy to just wait until we're looking at issue two well with that in mind then i guess i should say a massive thank you to gav mitchell for drawing our cover artwork and another massive thank you to Elliot Red for composing and performing our amazing theme tune, Justice. And I'm gonna I'm gonna sneak something in here, PJ, which I've been saving till the end. Ooh, uh, a letter from Christopher Monica Murphy. Oh, hello, hi, Chris. Who writes in uh, with, um, well, it's a, it's a suggestion that I just I, I don't really get what he's trying to say here because he says um, he says he noticed in our previous uh, episode when I was talking about the Superpowers Collection, mm. the weird uh, Marvel produced DC graphic novel. Uh, he says that I mentioned, uh, we were talking about Bax artist extraordinaire, Jim Apero. And uh, Chris Chris points out that uh, I pronounce it in a very, we pronounce it in a very similar way to how we pronounce uh, Amazo. So correct. Amazo. 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 Yeah. So, uh, you know, we say it correctly, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, Am- uh, Amazo, you know, and Apero. Uh, and Chris, uh, for some reason, seems to think it might be Amazo and Apero. I will thinks... accept Apero. I will accept that, but it's Amazo. Yeah, I know. And it, <laughs> he goes on to say, he goes on to say, he finds it quite amusing as opposed to amusing. Uh, um, amusing. Amazing. Now, the funny thing is, I realise that this entire bit relies upon pronunciation, but I've now stared at the word Amazo for so long. It's lost all meaning, and it, it was a lost word already. I know, and I'm trying to sell the bit, and I can't remember how I say it or how I don't say it now. Amazo. Yeah, it's Amazo. Amazo. He's from the he's from the Amazon. Yeah, he's Amazo a big robot. of the Amazons. Yeah. Yeah, Am- Amazo of the Amazons. I don't really understand <laughs> what the problem. Is. Uh, well, so, on that note, um, if we have nothing left to say, PJ. Could you please see us off in your own unique manner? I'm going to go get vomited on again. 